Well, welcome to our Good Friday service. Great to have you here with us. This is a special service and so glad that you've joined us on this special occasion, Good Friday. I think I know most of you here, but in case I don't, my name is Corey Smidgen. I'm a pastor here. It's my privilege to really lead us through the service this evening. And if you are a guest, we're glad you're here, and we want you to come back and hear the rest of the story, okay, on Easter this Sunday. But thanks for being here this evening. And lastly, to our children, it is great to have you here. MJ, give me a, give me a five. I am glad we have kids here. This is unusual for us. But if you're a child or youth here, I want you to hear this. I believe God wants to communicate with you tonight and help you understand. I'm trusting he's going to do that. Now, I'm not a guy of many words, but when I preach, I can use a lot of words, okay? So we're going to have a little shorter service tonight, okay? Because we have the whole families with us. But I'm trusting in that time, God's going to communicate to our hearts, young and old. So with that, let's open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start with verse 45 of Matthew 27. And the title of this evening's message is Forsaken Not. Forsaken Not. And to give you a little context as you open up to Matthew 27, kind of set the scene for you. What we're about to read, well, it's Friday in our text. It's Friday, 33 AD in Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews, has been handed over to be crucified. And at about nine o'clock on this Friday morning, Christ is nailed to a wooden cross. And with that in mind, picking up in Matthew 27, I'll begin with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders, hearing it, said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. They were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Let us pray. Well, Lord, tonight, 
I feel very inadequate to expound upon the crucifixion. But Lord, my confidence and our confidence this evening is in your word that you would arrest our attention tonight, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would draw us closer to our Savior in awe, in wonder, in grace, as we behold our Savior again tonight upon the cross, we pray. Amen. Amen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never in all eternity has a sentence more full of anguish been uttered, to paraphrase Charles Spurgeon. And verse 45 in your text speaks to the anguish in picture form in the most foreboding of ways. We read in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was what? Darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour, that is about noon, the Jews began their day at sunup, sunrise. So six hours, the sixth hour would have been around noon. To the ninth hour, 3 p.m., the middle of the day, there was darkness. The hour of Christ's crucifixion had come. The reason for which the Son of God had come to earth had arrived. And it was greeted and preceded by utter darkness. 39 books of the Old Testament, 2,000 years of human history plus had led to this very point in time had led to this very place, Jerusalem, had led to this very person, Christ, had led to this very cross, had led to this very darkness. Please understand, this darkness, this utter darkness that occurred in midday, this was not a solar eclipse. This is nothing that could be explained by astronomy alone. For this was a time of Passover. Passover was celebrated on the full moon. A solar eclipse can only occur with a new moon, not a full moon. No, this darkness that we read about was an act of God, a supernatural act of God, a pictorial manifestation of God's own divine judgment. God's foretold wrath for humanity's sinful rebellion had been suspended no more. It came like the night, like a foreboding thunderstorm here in South Florida. We had one of those, right? Just a few hours ago. Like the many foreboding thunderstorms that we have each and every hot summer day. As I was preparing for the sermon this evening, I was recalling one particular storm that I encountered and witnessed this past July. My family and I were driving over I-75. We looked south, and this is what we saw. 
I had two reactions. Number one, Joel rolled down the window. He's my son. He was at the driver's side. Excuse me, the driver's side, the passenger side. I said, Joel, here, take the camera. Get a picture. I didn't know if it was a nuclear mushroom or what was going on or just a good old thunderstorm, but it was ominous and it was foreboding. And then my second reaction was this. Joel, roll up the window. We're getting out of here. <laughs> there was poor souls who were going south at this moment into the storm on I-75. What I wanted to do and what we did was race home away from that storm. But Jesus didn't do that. You see, for Jesus, the way home was into this storm. That's what we see in this narrative this evening. But this storm that was around Jesus, this utter darkness that surrounded him and Calvary wasn't just what was happening in and around him, but I believe it also represented what was happening within him as well. After six agonizing, lonely hours of hanging on the cross, Christ broke the deafening silence and gave voice to that storm within, crying into the darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those words are the only words of Jesus on the cross recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Mark. Most of you know there are four Gospels that give account of Christ's life. And the first two only mention this one cry. Just as an aside, if they were just making this up, if this was just a fabricated tale of Christ, I don't believe this would be the phrase they would have put down in the Gospels. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I can imagine them emphasizing the other sayings of Christ on the cross that we read elsewhere in the Gospels. When Christ said to those who had crucified him and to the criminals at his side, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Or when Christ, upon taking his last breath, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When you hear that, there's at least a nobility, a confidence, an assurance of our Savior. But this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let's just stand back. That sounds rather perplexing, doesn't it? It's not downright chilling. Perhaps you might even wonder if these words of Jesus were spoken in confusion or maybe a little surprised at how things would turn out. But church, we are not left with that conclusion. And I have three simple observations I want to make to morning, this, this morning. I knew I was going to say that this evening regarding this text. Number one, Jesus was not surprised. He was well apprised. He knew exactly what he was doing when he went to that cross and when he died. Only hours earlier, Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed as he sweat tears of blood and he prayed these words. Matthew 26, verse 39. My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, 
not as I will, but as you will. Christ knew exactly what was being asked of him by the Father. He was being asked to drink the cup of God's wrath, the very storm around him, which he was now experiencing within him as he hung there on the cross. Jesus was asked to drive into the center of that storm. Well, you just saw there was a storm that had been forming over hours on a hot summer afternoon. You realize this storm that we're talking about here in Matthew 27 had been forming, had been brewing, not for hours, not for days, but for millennia. For this very time, so that Christ would be the lightning rod of God's wrath. And to be that lightning rod meant that Christ had to be crucified on an executioner's cross on a barren hill called Golgotha, the place of a skull. And Jesus, as the lightning rod, hung there willingly, submissively, as our substitute, in our place, bearing the punishment for our sins. The story I just showed you, we often refer to those as acts of God. Acts of God. It's a term, a legal term. Even you might read in some insurance company's literature or small print, right? It's a legal term referring to those events outside of our control. What we sometimes call natural, right? Disasters, lightning strikes, hailstorms, windstorms, earthquakes, all those things for which no one can be held responsible. But this act of God that we're reading about tonight was different. It was an act of God. The church, we were responsible. We were guilty and culpable. Every person here who has sinned against a holy and perfectly righteous God and those who are not here tonight as well, we are all guilty and culpable. It wasn't just the Romans, was it? Not just the Romans who executed Jesus or the Jews who falsely accused Jesus through a series of sham trials and had him put to death. Not not just the Romans, not just the Jews who are guilty. No, each and every one of us in our sin, in our rebellion against God, in our rejection of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, I'm going to read from the Holman Bible, says this. He, that is God, made the one, that is Jesus, who did not know sin to be sin for us. Let's just walk through that phrase carefully. I'm sorry we don't have it on the overhead here, just listen up. He made the one, that's God the Father, made God the Son Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, who did not know sin, who was perfect, holy, and completely pleasing to God, to be sin, to take the curse of sin 
as if Jesus had actually sinned. And he did it. Two important words for us as our substitute in our place as the bearer of our sin for all the sins of those who died for. Oh, church, Jesus. He wasn't surprised. He knew his role in God's plan of redemption and what it would cost. If you're going to measure the worth of Christ's love, oh, measure it with the cross of Jesus Christ. But perhaps you may hear the story which you've heard before and you may think to yourself, well, Christ knew that his mission was to bear our sin. But I also know he was God, fully God, but also fully man. And perhaps in Christ's weakened humanity, in the agony and isolation of the cross, Jesus somehow just imagined that he was being abandoned by the Father. Maybe it didn't really happen. He just thought it was in a moment of weakness. Wouldn't you? Well, church, we're not left at that conclusion either. And that leads to the second observation. Jesus was not mistaken. Jesus, he was forsaken, truly forsaken by God the Father on the cross. You see, Jesus became our sin bearer. Jesus was cut off and separated from God. It's what sin does, right? In our rejection of God and rebellion against God, it cuts us off from God. It kills us. He who became sin was cut off from the Father in our place. I mean, th- think about it for a moment. Here we have Jesus, second person of the Trinity. What does that mean? He has been with God the Father for all eternity. That's all Christ has ever known was complete and perfect fellowship with his Father for all eternity. For all eternity, Jesus was in, you could say, constant touch and communion with the Father. For all eternity, all that Jesus had known was the unqualified approval of the Father. That same approval that thundered from heaven. Do you recall when Christ was baptized? Remember that? I love it. What do we hear? We hear a voice from heaven. God the Father. Say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Go forward. In time. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? When God appears, Jesus in glorified form, what do we hear thundering from the skies? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Now on the cross, at the very moment of time when Jesus most needed, wanted to hear the testimony and approval of his father. You know what? God the Father was silent. Silent. Cut off. Forsaken. Cursed. Jesus was not mistaken. He was truly forsaken. Oh, church, measure the height of Christ's love by the depth of this. But there's one more observation. 
we must make, which hopefully will embolden every child of God here. And it's this. Although Jesus was forsaken, he was not shaken. He was not shaken by the events that were occurring on Calvary. Jesus trusted in God. And when we read, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ is quoting Psalm 21, excuse me, 22, verse 1. Christ clings to his God. You notice the words there? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ has not lost his confidence and trust in the Father, but expresses his trust. You see, these, I don't believe these were words of self-pity, church. These were not words of self-pity. We read in verse 46 that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He didn't cry out in pain and anguish in a loud voice to be heard by God as if he was looking to the Father for pity or for some explanation for what was occurring and happening to him. No, I believe that Jesus was crying out with these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I could hear those very words in every bystander of the cross. Are you listening this evening? Christ was our knowing, willing sin bearer until his final breath in which under his own will and volition, we read, yielded up his spirit. Why? He did it in submission, in submission to the Father's will. Why? He did it for the very ones who rejected, despised, denied, and mocked and crucified him. He did it for you and for me. Remember 2 Corinthians 5.21. I I just read part of the verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Well, the verse continues. Let me give you that second half of that one verse. He did this so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, he did it that we might be forgiven and made right with God, that we might be acceptable and pleasing to him, that we might never, ever be forsaken by God. That is why we call this day Good Friday. This puts the good in the Friday right there. He did it for you and I, that we would never be forsaken. Christ was forsaken so that you and I, all those who place their saving faith in Christ Jesus, would now and for all eternity never be forsaken. And all that we read in the following verses, verses 51 through 54, serve as an exclamation mark to this very point. I don't know if you caught that. We read some pretty wild stuff. What's that in there for? The temple curtain was torn in two. The temple curtain which separated man from the Holy of Holies. The temple curtain which separated man from the presence of God was torn in two. 
You understand this, this temple curtain? was approximately 60 feet long and 30 feet high. It was as thick as my palm. Some literature says that it took 300 men to lift this curtain when it was wet. And it was this curtain upon Christ's final breath that was snapped in two from top, from top to bottom. This was no act of man. This was an act of God showing that through Christ's death on the cross, we now have free, complete access to God the Father. We will not be turned back. We will not be forsaken. You and I will never be forbidden to come into his presence because of our sin any longer. We will never ever be turned away from God. We will never be forsaken by God. Yesteryear's sin, yesterday's sin, today's sin, and tomorrow's sin will not bar you, nor me, nor anyone in Christ Jesus from coming to God. But the narrative doesn't stop there. It goes a little further. We read, not only was the curtain torn in two, what else happened? The earth shook, the rock split, and tombs were opened, and dead saints were brought back to life. Matthew now is seemingly, apparently collapsing time, and now speaking of a resurrection that follows Christ's resurrection, as mentioned in verse 53. It's like Matthew in this text said, I can't wait to get to Easter. The death of death has begun. Not only will Christ not forsake you in this life, he will not forsake you in death. We need not fear death. Oh, church, we as Christians can peer six feet down into the grave. As I did six months ago, when I saw my father buried and say, death has no hold on me. Death has no hold on him. Not for those who are in Christ Jesus. I will not be forsaken in life and I will not be forsaken in death. You will not be forsaken in life and you will not be forsaken in death. But I get ahead of myself. That's our Easter message. I'll let, he, I'll let Al preach the rest of that one, okay? Well, in conclusion... Maybe your dreams haven't turned out quite as you planned. You look at yourself now at age 30, 40, 50, and 60, and you ask this question, what happened? This is not how I planned it. We can be tempted, can't we, to say just that. But whenever you or I am tempted to say what happened, maybe respond with this answer. The cross happened. The cross happened just as God the Father had planned it. And that means if you're in Christ Jesus, you have not been forsaken for one minute You've not been forsaken for one 
millisecond as a child of God. That's true if you're single and here tonight. That's true if you're in a painful, troubled marriage. You have not been forsaken. It's true if you're here and you're divorced tonight. It's true if you're here and you're caring for a very needy child or parent. You will not be forsaken. You may cry and there may be a lot of tears. There may be a lot of petitions to your Savior. Oh God, fill me. Oh God, help me. Oh God, have mercy. But there's one cry you will never need to cry. And that's this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he has not and he will not now and forever more. In turning your eyes to the current world of political scene, perhaps you're here and you are dismayed by what is happening in the world around you right now. Al referenced it in his prayer. What occurred this past week, another terrorist attack, this time in Belgium. News of terrorist attacks. News of Zika outbreaks. U.S. presidential politics. You can't figure it out. What's going on, Lord? And there's consternation in your heart. They just downright fear. If that's you, please hear me this evening. These are not the darkest days of our history. You understand that darkest day occurred 2,000 years ago when we executed God. When Jesus rode into the storm and became the lightning rod of God's wrath and took the punishment that we deserve. When light turned to darkness, the earth shook, the rocks split, and the temple curtain was torn into two for you and for me. Oh, please hear this. I believe this is for a number of you tonight. The darkest days are not before you, Christian. They're behind you. They are behind you. Oh, there will be challenging days ahead. There will be trials and tribulation and dark days. Oh, but it won't compare to what occurred at Calvary 2,000 years ago. It won't. I don't know everyone's heart here. I know most of you. But I'm speaking to the Christian. If you're not a Christian here tonight, here's the reality. Your darkest days lie ahead of you. It's called the judgment of God upon your death or Christ's return. You will be judged. Either Christ will be judged for your sins or you'll be judged. But here's the good news. Here's the amazing news. Tonight can be the most life-altering and life-changing moment 
where your darkest days no longer lie ahead of you, but are placed behind you at the cross. That can happen. Imagine living a life free of dread, free of fear, a day of liberation, no longer rejected, no longer forsaken by God, but freely accepted by him because of what he did for you upon that cross at Calvary on Good Friday. That can be you. And that's my prayer for each one of you and for many here who I know are believers, for your family members and your friends who don't yet know Christ. Oh, may the darkest days be behind them at the cross of Jesus where their sins were atoned for in full. Oh, may that be our prayer this evening. It is mine for you and for every beloved who does not know the saving message. So on this Good Friday, church, let us look to Jesus who hung there on the cross and let us join the chorus of those who proclaimed with awe, truly, this was the Son of God. He who was forsaken so that we in this life and life eternal would not. Church, that is good news. That is Good Friday. And that is what we're celebrating and remembering this evening. So with that in mind, I'd like to call up the worship band for one last song, For the Cross. How appropriate to respond in worship and acknowledgement and thanksgiving for what occurred at Calvary. Let me pray for us as they come forth. Well, dear Lord, thank you. May we as a church never grow tired of speaking of the cross, of coming back to the cross to receive grace and encouragement. Oh, Lord. And I pray for some, yes, even salvation. Would it be tonight or in the days ahead? Oh, Lord, open the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of God in Christ Jesus as seen at the cross. Lord, only you can do that by your spirit. We're asking that you would do that tonight. Do it again afresh for each one of us this weekend as we celebrate Holy Week, as we come back on Sunday to celebrate not only your death, but your resurrection and our hope in you. May we sing now with that hope firmly placed in our heart, we pray. Amen.